if I'm going to have the timer, I may as well have it so I can see it. All right. Um, next Sunday, next Lord's Day, uh, is, is we celebrate both Advent in the morning and then Christmas in the evening. We'll have our Christmas Eve service uh, next Sunday evening. We have some invitations available uh, out at the Info Center and other places. Uh, great opportunity to invite friends, neighbors, uh, even family. We try to keep the service um, expeditious, economical in time so we can make it part of our Christmas worship and celebration, but, you know, uh, get to our family things as well. So think of that, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday evening. Till then, let's continue with Advent, and we're working through uh, that section of Mary's song, sometimes called the Magnificat, because the first word is rejoice or magnify the Lord, as we've sung even this morning and heard the choir minister as well. We read a, a certain portion, which we'll focus on. We've kind of been working through this in consideration of, of Mary. This is her song. Uh, this is the, the, uh, the, the outflow of her own heart. Now, twice in Luke's gospel, he records the fact that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And certainly the events as we come to Christmas Eve, you know, the angels and the shepherds and the magi. Yeah, I think the magi were there too, but that's another story. All of this going on and happening. In fact, I don't think he was in a cave. I think he was in the garage of the house, but that's another story too. It's all right. So um, she's pondering certainly all those events, you know, and experiences, but this is an inspired, spirit-driven outflow from her heart of what she is considering. What truth is she pondering? And it, it's about God. The attributes, the character, and the nature of God. And not just God there, but she's recognizing that God is in her. She's bearing the Son of God, miraculously, supernaturally. So we've considered uh, Christ as the Savior in all of His holiness. We've considered Christ as the Savior in, in His mercy. And now we think of Christ as the Savior in all of his might. Uh, this passage, as, as was read, uh, talks about the strong and mighty arm of the Lord. And his mighty arm is not just, not just Mr. Olympia or Mr. Universe flexing muscles, but his arm is active, involved in the creation and involved in the lives of humanity on behalf of his people in particular. He's active. He's involved. He, he isn't simply the creator who gets things started and then sits and watches. He is a creator who creates and continues to provide, and continues to protect, continues to bring all things to a certain purpose, goal, and end. And the purpose ultimately is to be found in the eternal son who would come. Now, we're going to reflect on these um, uh, three verses uh, in terms of God's mightiness. And the first area we get the picture is that he's mighty over all of our thoughts. 
You can see it in the verse there, verse 51. It says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The thoughts of their heart. Yeah, He is mighty in all of His authority and He's confounded the reasoning. He's confounded the thoughts of the societally privileged in selecting a maiden of really no account from a no-account town to bear the Christ child. That that goes contrary. We, 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 the, the natural person would think that the one to be born king of kings and lord of lords would, would be born in a palatial setting. The, the natural person thinks that there's a certain order and degree uh, and class and status that is higher, and because of its higher, it's better. We think the influencers of this age are those with an elevated power or an elevated profile, an elevated position. There's a notoriety and maybe even a net worth. That's how the natural person considers these things. The spiritual person, the spiritual person, well, like God, thinks otherwise. God warns us in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, he just outright says, Your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If they're high and lifted up, you know, recognize your limitation. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and he confounds the wise of this age. The spiritual person, under the the mighty arm of the Lord, thinks carefully of one's place, of one's own position, one's posture. Psalm 131, a a psalm actually of ascent, and yet, catch this, Psalm 131, verse 1. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. We can think of that psalm in many applications, but isn't it poignant as we consider the God incarnate, God in flesh, the Son eternal being born of a woman, being humbled. In frail humanity, he comes. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a child. God himself, who is mighty, God himself, who is high and lifted up, enters in to this posture of humility, humble thoughts. Another familiar psalm to us that we read in different settings, I suppose, Psalm 139. If you'll indulge me, there's six verses I want to read out of the psalm, beginning at verse 1. Lord, you've searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He is mighty over my thoughts. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in and behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The merciful and mighty God, high and lifted up and yet close, imminent. He knows our thoughts. He is master over them. He he is judge of them. Our thoughts thoughts are to be redirected from the natural realm to that spiritual realm, from self-preservation, self-advancement, survival of the fittest mentality. Yes, I know we're against evolution in a biological sense, and yet how much do you socially actually live out that way, survival of the fittest? The natural thinks that way, but during... This season, we need to remember to redirect our thoughts with abandonment of self-thought. Consider consider Jesus specifically. One, One of the great passages of the Incarnation that blends Christmas and Easter together is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 5. I'm actually going to read from uh, a newer translation. It's called the Legacy Standard Bible. Um, It just has a couple of phrases that that I think put it clear. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although existing... Oh, I goofed. The word although isn't there. It's not in... it, I can take you to my study and we, I can pull out the New Testament Greek for you and show you it's not there. They make it there to be smooth, but it, you miss the whole character and nature of God. i just correcting myself, preaching to myself here. Who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, let me pause. This is off track, but it's on track. God himself, part of the character and the nature of God, is not to grasp his own position. The character and nature of God in all of his splendor and holiness is also one of humility. The text reads, who, being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is what it means to be God. To not be grasping Wow. Wow. Verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that's the incarnation applied to our lives to think differently. He is mighty. Mighty over them. Uh, another great Advent song, along with Emmanuel, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we sang uh, to begin our service. Let all mortal flesh. Let me just read the first stanza. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. Ponder nothing earthly minded. We sing this. Do we sing it thoughtfully? Do we mean it? So he's mighty over our thoughts. He's mighty over our thrones. Uh, verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. I suppose it's a little more challenging for us to identify with this one. Uh, whether you think of the Pharaoh in Egypt or Og the Canaanite of Bashan or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Cyrus of Persia or Herod, the king of the Jews, or Nero, the emperor of Rome. God, God sets up and God deposes rulers, all rulers. There is no ruler outside of his control. There is no election outside of his control. Whether it was fake, doesn't matter on one hand. God rules and overrules. D Daniel prays this. Daniel teaches King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, this truth. Daniel chapter 2 Verses 20 and 21, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now we can focus on the king part, just the seasons. I'm praying for snow. You're praying against me? No. Just, just enough to cover the grass on Christmas Day. He, he changes times and seasons. And maybe he's changing us to be like Florida. I don't know. But he also removes kings and raises kings. So what God does. He is mighty over the thrones. God rules. And think of even Herod this season. In Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we get the recording of the Magi who are coming from the east. They have seen his star in the east and we have come to see the one who is born king of the Jews that we might worship him. And Herod says, really? Go find him for me. The Lord warns them after they've worshipped, they bow down. Uh, the kind of worship that's described, there's actually bowing all the way to the ground in homage of submission that he's master and lord of everything. 
And after they, they worship, they're warned by an angel of the Lord to not return to Herod. Herod, in venomous jealousy, and he's, he was known as the, this way in many aspects of his rule and his life and his family. He, he has the male babies two years and under slaughtered within that region, within the area, so as to get rid of any threat to the throne, the king of the Jews. He, he had been put there by the emperor. He, he will remain. Well, not only are the Magi warned to not return to Herod, but now Joseph, the father, the, the adoptive father of Jesus, is also warned, take this child and go to Egypt. Go to Egypt to protect him from this, this grasping king. And, and actually, you know, this isn't plan B. Or see. This isn't God showing up to Joseph and saying, Uh-oh, Joseph, guess what I just learned? Herod's going to kill the babies two years and under. I, you better get out of here. No, God knows this. In fact, Joseph is told this is in, to fulfill the word of the Lord to Hosea. Of all places, Hosea, I think is chapter 8. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is part of the plan. Wow. He is mighty over the thrones. And not only this, but, but, but so Jesus goes down into Egypt from the promised land and he's going like the first Joseph, the one whom his adoptive father is named after. Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers and took, taken down ultimately into Egypt. And from there, God would call his son out, which we studied when we went through the Exodus earlier this year. Like, wow. God's in control of the thrones. Stop playing the game of thrones with the Lord. It's futile. And not only, not only with the, the thrones of the empires and the nations, but your life. He's master. The Magi bowed. Joseph obeyed. Yes, Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of all history. Not just a few verses here and there from the Old Testament, but he, he is the fulfillment of all time and all history. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 and 16 puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Born, not made, like the Nicene Creed would remind us. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the end goal, the purpose, why you were made. 
And he's orchestrating all the affairs of humanity to bring them together. It doesn't mean that all that happens is good or desirable from our experience. But it does mean that God will work all things together to accomplish his good purpose and plan for a new creation where righteousness dwells. And it all is fulfilled in Jesus. It's for him. And, and, and the sovereign grace of God is not only these high, mighty, and uh, places of social elite and politics and academics and arts and sciences. It's the throne room of our own hearts. Same letter in Colossians, just a, a couple chapters down. Colossians 3.15. Here's the admonition for the people of God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Is he reigning in your heart? Is he ruling your life? Mighty over our thoughts? Mighty over our thrones? Is there is there any area of your life and soul, any region, any territory of your life that is not fully surrendered to the reign of King Jesus? Oh, isn't it so hard to surrender? It's easy to sing the song, I surrender all but then to walk out into the hinterlands of the world and to live the surrendered life. Paul, Paul, Paul would say in his letters, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You, uh, how do you get there where I no longer live? Dead people don't care what happens to them. At least temporally, right? And there are moments I still care. I'm not fully dead yet. Not fully surrendered to the reign of Jesus. Recognize we're speaking of spiritual life. Mighty over our thoughts, mighty over our thrones. In verse 53, just had to be this way. Mighty over things. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. There's a beautiful parallelism throughout these verses. There's three, we might we say, positive statements about raising the humble and three negative statements about toppling the elite of society. The power. It's beautiful. 
And here he flips the order. He's filled the hungry with good things. It's quoting from Psalm 104, verse 28, and Psalm 107, verse 9. Mary knew her Bible. Mary knew the Scriptures. This is what she's pondering. The words of God. And it flows out in praise and adoration. God is mighty over things. Dave quoted the scripture this morning, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was nothing made that was made. You catch that? All things were made through Him. It means God's not a thing for one thing. All things were made through the Son, the eternal Son. All things. And so we ponder the beauties of creation and they are indeed good and beautiful and true. But what, what aspects of the creation do you look at in not so healthy a way? Again, the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Oh, what a verse to have on your computer monitor. On the Amazon account. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the things of the world. But positively, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, His divine power, might, has granted to us all things for life and godliness. Everything you need for life and godliness. God's mighty power has provided for you. That makes your Christmas list really short. Again, Peter reminds us, you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And it's these kinds of things, things. And we come back to Mary. She pondered all these things treasuring them in her heart. What things are you considering? In, in the coming of Christ, there, there's a new world order coming where the meek inherit the kingdom of heaven. Where the mighty of this age we sang, we sang, we sang what song was that we just sang? Hark the herald, no, yeah, hark the herald angels sing something about he came to give us second birth. Remember that stanza? We've been doing Revelation at night and this thing just came shot into my head this morning as I'm singing, came to give us second birth. 
And we're at the section where there's a second death, the end of Revelation. The second death. Hell, Hades, the sea, the grave all give up their dead and they, the dead are standing before the great white throne of Christ Jesus. And they're judged on what they've done in their life with him. And the judgment comes back that they have done nothing with him. They've rejected him. And so they then are thrown into the eternal lake of fire, which is the second death. But those of you who have the second birth will never, ever face or fear the second death. If you've never had the second birth, born again, the Spirit of God enlivening your heart to the things of Jesus, who's mighty over your thoughts, your throne, and your things. If you've not surrendered to King Jesus, and the Spirit hasn't made you alive to do that, then what you face is the second death. Friend, you don't want that. I don't want that for you. None of us who are in Christ want that for anybody. This is why we praise and we pray and we preach Jesus is King. And in Him you can have real life, real joy, real peace. No, it doesn't change necessarily the circumstances on the outside. But it gives us a living hope. Our Christ is holy. He is merciful. He is mighty. So, Father, we do come in the name of Jesus and ask that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. If we have never come to life in Jesus, would you make us alive? By the same Spirit that wrought life into the virgin womb that hovered over the surface of the waters at creation and, and there was life. So, so, Spirit of God, descend upon our hearts and make us alive to Jesus. Born again of the Spirit. Washed. Redeemed by blood, not gold and silver or frankincense and myrrh, but the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But all of us who are alive in Christ need to keep putting to death the flesh. We wish it was instantaneous, Lord, but in your good purpose, you have made it a process of life experience. So by that same Spirit that made us alive, would you help us to put the flesh down and stop playing that game with you who are mighty over all and yield the territory and the outer lands of our life, our soul and spirit 
to your Lordship for the glories of Jesus Christ. And you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.